Go back with me, if you will, to the year 2000, uh, where I moved from West Lafayette, Indiana, to a small little hick town outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, called Caswell, Tennessee. So I grew up. And this, uh, it wasn't long until after we moved to Tennessee that I attended my very first Tennessee Volunteers football game against the Vanderbilt Commodores. And I remember walking down the street called Philip Fulmer Way, he was the head coach at the time, and being greeted by the sea of orange, right? And then a massive, massive stadium called Neyland Stadium. And I remember walking into Neyland Stadium, I was so eager to get into Neyland Stadium. And I remember walking in and taking my seat amongst 102,455 screaming Tennessee fans. And they were all singing Rocky Top at the top of their lungs. And I remember looking around in awe and being like, this stadium never ends. I had been to a Purdue football game early in my life, but man, nothing compared to that many people screaming that loud on football Saturday. And that is where my Tennessee fandom had started. I mean, to date, I own up to 50 articles of Tennessee clothing. I uh, Orange is my favorite color. Rocky Top constantly plays during sporting events at my house. Even volleyball, soccer, recently baseball, softball. I watch them all, right? And we go nuts, or at least I do. My three-year-old daughter sings Rocky Top all the time. Anytime she gets to ride my truck, Daddy, we get to listen to Rocky Top. Let's sing Rocky Top. She wears her, the colors loudly and proudly. So we're getting ready to go to Tennessee for vacation today, actually, to go to Gatlinburg. And I told her, we're going to Tennessee. She goes, oh gosh, i got to get my pom-poms. We're going to go watch the Vols. And I'm like, oh gosh, I failed my daughter. Tennessee is more than just a sports team. It's an actual state, Right? And so I call Neyland Stadium my home away from home. My basement is decked out in orange. My man cave is painted Tennessee orange, right? If you go down to my basement, you're like, this is obnoxious. Get me out of here. It always ha- Whenever you see somebody wearing Tennessee around anywhere you go, or if somebody's got a Tennessee bumper sticker, you pass them on the interstate, it always happens, go Vols, air five or high five. It's just... It's a family thing. It's a devotion. It's something that we love and share in common. The Vols are my team and they always will be. And I have all that I have because I want people to know that Tennessee is my team. I'm a proud fan and I'm a devoted fan. And that's what I want to talk about today is devotion. And you see the definition to devotion is dedicating time and effort to something or someone that we believe in. Whatever we're devoted to, we want it to succeed. And I think we would all agree that devotion is good, right? Devotion uh, is a beautiful expression that we get to share as people. Devotion gives us purpose. It drives us to do something. We get to experience what is to come, or we hope, whatever it may be. Devotion keeps us focused in the trials Terrible Tennessee seasons, football seasons, but yet we can dream of what could be. Devotion is bigger than ourselves. It takes our attention off of us and, and takes it and directs it towards a movement, something that's bigger than us. 
Devotion is a journey of emotions, happiness, sadness, anger, especially if you're a Tennessee fan, and hope. And all of that, I wear this shirt because I want people to know that I'm a devoted Tennessee fan. No matter how good or how bad it might be. But devotion can quickly turn into idolatry. Or being devoted to the wrong things. And so for this morning, I'd love for us to hear this truth that is probably hard for us to swallow. We all worship an idol. And typically it starts with ourselves. You see, from a very early age, we think about me. It's all about me, right? My toddler, she's three and a half, trying threes. Terrible twos were actually pretty easy compared to trying threes. But now, it's me. It's all about me. Daddy, I want some juice. No, you've had, you, if you could, you'd drink a hundred juices in a row. Can't have juice, too much sugar. Throws a fit, right? It's, so from an early age, we believe that life is all about me. And unfortunately, it's a way of thinking that we just kind of sit in, even into adulthood. And it starts with the worship of self. I mean, think about it. We will tear down the image of others to protect the image of ourselves. We will use people to get to a specific location that we want to be in our lives. We believe we are a big deal. We feel entitled. We will compare ourselves to others, usually placing the other party in a negative light. And I'm sure this doesn't come as a surprise. It doesn't for me when I look at myself in the mirror and say, Chris, the world doesn't revolve around you. And I'm sure it doesn't come as a surprise when, I would, when the truth is the world doesn't revolve around you. We learn from a very early age that it's all about me. And this summer we're asking the question, how do we know if our, if our relationship with Jesus is legit? And so we're walking through the book of James. And James focuses a lot of his time talking about the believer and the follower of Jesus and what their life should and could look like. And so today we find ourselves in the beginning of chapter 4 where James is diving into what devotion to God looks like. And James's audience is the first Christian audience after the resurrection of Jesus uh, that is in a church and a community. And they had a lot of divisiveness that was happening on the inside. It was tearing them apart. And it started with self. And it started with the, the, the pursuit of pleasure. And so we're going to see what was it that was keeping James's audience from pursuing full devotion to God. And how does that apply to us today? And I think we might be relieved that we aren't the first humans to struggle with the worship of self over full devotion to God. So let's dive into chapter 4, break it down, uh, and we'll start there. So, uh, starting in verse one, verses 1 through 3, James says, What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that were within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you will kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask God for it, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want what will only give you pleasure. And check out what James starts out with. He asks the question, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you, church? 
And he's not asking that question to give them the opportunity to respond. James knew the answer. And the answer is that it's coming from the evil desires within you. And when he answers and he says this, he says evil desires are a life motivated by a life of pleasure. That we're always looking out for self. We're doing whatever it takes. What can it do for me? What can I do to give myself pleasure? And in, in this context, in this audience, it looked like schemes. It looked like murder. It looked like hatred. It looked like jealousy. And it doesn't take long to look around in our society today and see the effects of mass destruction, of hatred and strife that happen in our human society. Why? Because man, men and humans are on a journey. They've gone mad pursuing the life of pleasure that they feel like they deserve. But it doesn't stop there. We see war between nations. We see war in our own nation. We see war in our cities. We see war in our homes. We see war in our relationships. We see war in ourselves. And the root cause? Humans have gone mad. Seeking after life and pleasure. And James starts by addressing this divided heart that's in the human nature. That we either, James is saying, you either serve self or you go full out devotion, complete devotion to God. Do we live a life that's controlled by the motive of pleasure? Or do we live a life that's fully sold out for our creator? Moving on, James must have had a bad day. Because he's getting all up in your business again. And he says, you adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? That's tough. I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate. That the spirit that he placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is hard to read, friends. It's tough. Once again, James is getting all up in your business. That's his whole point in this book. He is going to challenge you, make you uncomfortable, make you offended. All for the sake that the glory of God would be seen in your life. That we would live a life that reflects the values and the purposes of God in His kingdom. And so James gives this very stern warning. And he gives us this reality of the heaviness and the meaning of what it is to fully devote our lives to Jesus. And so he starts by calling his audience adulterers. And it's important to note that James is referring to the Old Testament imagery... And the reason he's saying this is because his audience would be familiar with this imagery. That Israel is the bride of God. And that God is Israel's husband. Now, hear me out. I know that sounds weird for some of us possibly, right? But James isn't talking about the physical relationship that happens between a man and a woman in marriage. Like the bounce. Like he's not talking about that, right? I'll agree with you on two things. Bounce chicken wow wow is awesome, okay, in marriage. And then secondly, that imagery of bounce chicken wow wow with God is nasty, okay? We won't go there. 
And that's not where James is going either. But James is talking about when Jesus, when we talk about God being the, or us being the bride of God and God being our husband, it's talking about God's intimacy, the closeness that he wants to have with his people. And what he's calling his, what he's calling his audience to, he's saying, listen, you have prostituted yourselves to evil desires and pleasures in this world. You have broken your marriage covenant. You have broke marriage covenant. You've broken your vow with God. And to break your vow with God is to sin against love. And to sin against love is to break the heart of God. So he's trying to help them understand their seriousness in this relationship. Right? That he wants to be close to us. That he wants to be our friend. He goes on to say... If I'm in the audience, I'm like, man, James, would you quit? He says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. James says, wash your hands, you sinners. So once again, James is helping his audience realize you're nothing without God. Your identity without God is sinner. It's broken. It's lost. It's wanderer. But with God, you are His. You belong to Him. And so he's trying to help them understand the weight of what it is, once again, not to be fully devoted to God and His purposes. And what James is not doing is he's not denying joy. He's not saying that believers should live life depressed and sad all the time and and just in a state of gloom or woe is me, pity is me. No, James is saying when it comes to your sin, when it comes to breaking your covenant with God, breaking your marriage vow, you should be saddened over that. And if you need to cry, cry. If you need to fall to your knees, fall to your knees. Because sin and God's majesty and holiness cannot exist in the same space. But the beautiful thing is that God can come into your sin and absolutely obliterate it. Because He loves us. And He wants to be close to us. He's all-knowing, always present. He's perfect God. That's pursued broken and needy people like you and me. So James is saying, learn to hate the things that God hates. And that includes your sin. That includes your pursuit of self-pleasure. So now that we've journeyed and we've allowed James to beat us up a little bit, right? What can we do? How can we take these truths and apply them to our lives today? Story time. Go back with me. Summer of 1998. This isn't about Tennessee, I promise. Lived in West Lafayette, Indiana. And my brother and I, one hot, scorching summer, we decided we're going to go explore in the woods. It's a great idea. Second grader and kindergartner going in the woods behind our apartment complex. We walk up to this half pipe, skateboarding half pipe. This thing was a death trap. Had weeds growing all over it. Pretty sure the last person that skated on it was Jesus and his disciples. Like it was that old. So we walk up to this half pipe. And I look at my brother and I'm like, dude, we have to go down this thing. Being a great example. Great big brother. But I'm in second grade. Give me some leeway. So we go home. I said, we got to take Sis's Barbie car. 
And that's the only thing we had. It was a small little Barbie car. Just wide enough to where a little second grade butt could barely fit in it, right? So we tell our dad. I'm like, Dad, can we go on that half pipe back there? He'd been hiding it. Like he knew it was there. And he knew if we went down there back there, we'd probably die. And so we tell him. And he's like, you will not go on that half pipe. Do you understand me? My, guy, my dad's like, Whoa, huge, right? And his, just got, his face got red. And, you're just, and when your dad says, do you understand me? Or mom, or grandma, or grandpa. But when your dad says it, you better say, yes, sir. Like, yes, sir. We put our heads down a little bit sad. Didn't think much of it. A week passes. We're bored sitting in the house. It's summertime. A light bulb moment. Boom. And I look at my brother. Dude, the half pipe. My brother's eyes got big. My dad's at work. He would never know. Biggest mistake. So we go into my, I said, we need to go steal sis's Barbie car. So we go to my sister's room. We kick in the door. I'm just kidding. We weren't that aggressive. But we go in. We're like, sis, can we have your Barbie car? She's like, whatever. I'm not playing with it. So we take her Barbie car. Feel so manly running out of the house, giggling with a Barbie car in my hand. So we go through the woods. We go back to the half pipe. And this time it just looks so much more majestic. Like it looks so inviting. So my brother and I climb to the top. And when you get to the top of this half pipe, you quickly realize it's a lot higher than it looks. Kind of like a roller coaster. So I'm looking down it. I'm like, I don't know, Wade. My brother's name is Wade. I said, I don't know, Wade. I don't know if I can do this. My kindergarten brother calls me a chicken. And when your brother calls you a chicken, you either punch him in the face, which you don't do because then you get in massive trouble, or you just do what he called you a chicken. You just do it and prove yourself. Prove to him you are not a chicken. So I took the Barbie car, I sat it down, my brother put his foot in my back, pushed me off the Barbie car. Barbie car stayed, my butt is going down this old, nasty piece of wood. And I get to the bottom and I quickly realize, oh my gosh, something is in my butt, my butt cheek, like my left butt off. I look back, my brother takes off running, like I'm screaming in pain, I'm in agony, I'm dying, I'm bleeding all over the place. My brother jumps off the half pipe, goes home. And so he doesn't come back for like 10 minutes. So I decide I should probably go home. So I walk with a limp the whole way home and I get into the house. I walk into the door and my brother is sitting on the couch eating a grilled cheese. I'm like, I thought you were going to get help. I could have died. So I go to my sister's room, the one who we stole a Barbie car. I'm like, sis, I need you to look at my left butt cheek. I know it's weird, but just please look. I pull down my pants and I show my sister my butt cheek. She screams, runs off. And I hear her going to my mom's room, and she's like, Bub's butt has a stick in it. So longer story short, I had a fort, no joke, a four-inch splinter that was like this wide. It was a stick in my left butt cheek. Cute nurse had to take it out. My dad comes from work because he heard about it, and he looks at me, and I'm like, oh, no. My dad says, what did I tell you not to do? Go on the half pipe. Why did I tell you not to do it? Because we could get hurt. And in the same way, when we see sin, it looks so inviting, like so majestic and awesome. And God is saying, don't do it. Because you're going to get hurt. And then we do it. And God's like, what did I tell you not to do? To seek a life of pleasure. Whatever way that looks. Why did I tell you not to do it? Because you knew we'd get hurt. Broken. Bloody on the floor. 
limping home, trying to find somewhere to find help. And God is saying, what did I tell you not to do? And that's why James is saying it's so important that we are in alignment with God's purposes and our lives are fully devoted to him because pleasure, sin, the world cannot coexist with God. And God isn't saying, well, the beautiful thing, my dad didn't disown me. My dad still became my father and became better and better. I realized it every single day. And God doesn't disown you. He picks us back up. He's saying, this is why you have to be in alignment with what I'm telling you to do. I'm your creator. Give me the credit as your creator. And this leads us to our first truth. Consequence, there are consequences in the pursuit of pleasure. Anybody else see something that looks so majestic and pleasurable in your life? and You just have a hard time turning it down. And the enemy is calling you a chicken. And when he calls you a chicken, you decide, oh, well, he's beating me up. Tell me I'm not worth anything. Might as well. Right? And he gets into your head and he lies. If my brother's watching this, you're not the devil. Okay? <laughs> but he gets into your head and he feeds you these lies. And we have instant gratification everywhere we look. Do you pursue entertainment before you pursue devotion to prayer and scriptural study? Do you choose hobbies and extracurriculars over the pursuit of like-minded community in Jesus? And here's my youth pastor moment. Next-gen moment. This is a challenge to me too, so I'm not just preaching to the choir. Parents in a world of instant gratification and pleasures, be cautious in choosing the temporary things of this world and making them a priority for your kids. Or the priority. They can be a priority. But don't make them the priority. Because what are we teaching them to value? Here's the truth. Eternity hangs in the balance. And if you look around, it doesn't take long to see Jesus come back. Time is short. Basketball, school, grades, college. All of that is important. Football, hockey, all of that is important. But in the grand scheme of things, eternity hangs in the balance. So what are we leading them to value? Does the love of pleasure ultimately keep you from seeing biblical commandments? Because it's not an easy journey. It's a difficult journey as a believer. And it requires us to do things that are uncomfortable It requires us to give up things that that are quite frankly fun and and feel good. But God, to follow Jesus means that we have the hope that we're going to live in eternity with Him someday. And God is saying, bring others along with you. Enjoy the life that you have on this side of eternity, but do not take your eyes off of the priority. That is devotion to me as your loving and heavenly Father. He's not a controlling and manipulative God, no. He's a good, good God. Which leads us to our truth number two. Is this, is that God is passionate for you. Scripture, James says that God is jealous over you. And this is what he means by that. Check out this quote by uh, Richard Strauss. And it says, no man with any moral fiber wants to share his wife with another man. And neither does God. He expects exclusive devotion from her. 
when she goes after other lovers, that is, when she worships other gods and thus commits spiritual adultery, God is said to be jealous. He's jealous because He wants us to be close to His heart. And He's jealous because His motive over you is love. It's peace. It's goodness. It's kindness. It's not control and manipulation. Because if it were, the world would be a perfect place. We look around, we see destruction and turmoil. We have free choice. But God is saying, are you willing to give all that up to follow me? Because all that's temporary. Eternity hangs in the balance. So how do we take the idolatry of self and turn it into full devotion to God? Godly devotion demands sorrow and humility. And in Matthew, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so what can we do to show a jealous God that we love him? Action step number one this week is mourn. We mourn. We allow God to reveal in ourselves the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities that keep us from living a sold-out life to Jesus Christ. That's uncomfortable and it's painful because he chisels, he chisels away at the things that are going on in our world that keep us separated from him. And this is a scary experience to stare into, but it's an experience that will lead us to experience his forgiveness and his love in our lives. It's here where we trade earthbound pleasures for joys that are far greater that reach into eternity. And so what earthbound pleasures do you pursue today? Does your bank, about, does your bank account reveal devotion to things that are far from God? Does your uh, screen time obliterate your Bible time? For me, does your anxiety overcome your ability to see clearly into the heart of God? For me, would I wake up at 7 a.m. to go have fun with my friends pre-game with the Tennessee Vols, but I won't get up early the next morning to be at church or to watch online. I'll do it on my own time. To be in community with people is important. We mourn by confronting the sin and learning to hate the sin in our lives. Action step number two, we resist. James said if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. We have vulnerabilities in our lives. And Satan knows what those vulnerabilities are. And he'll capitalize on them every single day. The enemy, the devil. So for me, it's health anxiety. And one of the things that people with health anxiety do, what they do is they feel a symptom. They get on Google. And Dr. Google is the worst doctor in the world. Okay, He has no degree. Don't listen to him. So I get on Google. I'm going through Google, looking at my symptoms. Before you know it, two hours pass. I'm sitting there on the couch. My daughter's getting ready for bed. My wife's sitting there. And they, it takes me away from everything in my world. And so what do I got to do? I have to wake up every single day with an action plan and go to war with the devil. Like Why? Because my integrity as God's creation hangs in the balance. I want to be who God has created me to be. And health anxiety is not it. And so some of the things I have to do is I have to keep track of my Google searches. And like, man, I looked, I looked up so many symptoms this week. If I'm sitting on the couch, I'm on the phone for an extended period of time. My wife knows it, and I give her permission to say, what are you doing? Are you looking up symptoms? Right? Got toe pain. Dr. Google says I got toe cancer, right? And so my wife is like, stop looking up symptoms. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Fight for your life because it's war. Eternity hangs in the balance. And then action number three is this. We submit. We turn our entire lives over to the hands of Jesus. We devote the rest of our days to follow him and follow him only. 
Now, there's not what James is. James isn't saying that you need to have perfection. We won't experience perfection until the day that we meet Jesus face to face. But we sure as heck should try for it. We should pursue it every single day. And so we submit our lives to Jesus. And when we fall, he picks us back up. When we get a four-inch splinter on our butt, he picks us back up. Right? That's the beautiful thing about God. And so just like I wear this shirt because I'm devoted to the Tennessee Volunteers, we should wear our new identity in Christ loudly and proudly because of who he is, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is and what he has done. We wear our new identity in Christ because we want people to know that we are devoted followers of Jesus. Just like I wear this shirt because I want you to know that I'm a fan. And we do it together. There's a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. So this morning I ask, James would ask, are you dedicated to the promotion of yourself or are you a sold out follower devoted to God? Devotion, remember, is dedicating time and effort to something or someone that we believe in. And Jesus is asking us, do you believe in me? Yeah, God, I believe you. No, 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 no. Do you really believe in me? Because if you do, you would be sold out. People would see God's love in you. Will you devote your life to me? It's not an easy journey, but it's a journey where eternity hangs in the balance. Let's be a people who bring others along the way. Because here's this truth. This is our ending point here. Take this with you. If you don't remember anything else, devotion to God will overcome the promotion of self. Devotion of God will overcome the promotion of self. Maybe not right away, but it's a journey. People don't need to see us. They need to see Jesus. This is why we give up everything to follow Him. Let's pray. God, we love You. We thank You so much for today. We thank You for the gift of salvation. We thank You for Your death on the cross so that we could have the hope that we would live with You one day in eternity. God, we're broken. We're needy. We're wretched people. And God, even our greatest works, as Your Word say, says, is like filthy rags. So God, help us to lean on You because of the closeness that You desire. The closeness You desire to be with us in a relationship. God, may we yield to who You are and follow Your commandments every single day. And when we fall, we know You'll pick us up because You're a good Father and that's what good dads do. So we pray all these things in Your name. Amen.